morning, I'm uh, Richard and I'm bringing both the readings this morning before Bruce comes and speaks to us. So this first one is from uh, Genesis chapter 41. When two full years had passed, Pharaoh had a dream. He was standing by the Nile when out of the river there came up seven cows, sleek and fat, and they grazed among the reeds. After them, seven other cows, ugly and gaunt, came up out of the Nile and stood beside those on the riverbank. And the cows that were ugly and gaunt ate up the seven sleek, fat cows. Then Pharaoh woke up. He fell asleep again and had a second dream. Seven heads of grain, healthy and good, were growing on a single stalk. After them, seven other heads of grain sprouted, thin and scorched by the east wind. The thin heads of a grain swallowed up the seven healthy, full heads. Then Pharaoh woke up. It had been a dream. In the morning his mind was troubled, so he sent for all the magicians and wise men of Egypt. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but no one could interpret them for him. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, Today I am reminded of my shortcomings. Pharaoh was once angry with his servants and he imprisoned me and the chief baker in the house of the captain of the guard. Each of us had a dream the same night and each dream had a meaning of its own. Now a young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. We told him our dreams and he interpreted them for us, giving each man the interpretation of his dream. And things turned out exactly as he has interpreted them to us. I was restored to my position and the other man was impaled. So Pharaoh sent for Joseph and he was quickly brought from the dungeon. When he had shaved and changed his clothes, he came before Pharaoh. And the second reading is from Romans chapter 8. And um, I often hear people say that uh, Romans 8.28 is their favourite verse in the Bible. So we're starting with that one. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of God? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, For your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Now in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth 
nor anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the reading of it. Help us not just to hear it, but to listen to it and to put it into action. Amen. Well, folks, if you were here last week, you will know that Punchy left us with that great phrase that Joseph chose pain over compromise. Chose pain over compromise. If you weren't here, you can catch up with it on the uh, church website, on the podcast there. Uh, Can you hear me well at the top there? I know the sound has been a bit iffy for the past few weeks. We're still working on the new sound system, but you can hear right up there. That's good. Okay, good. So, he sold as a slave, if you remember, by his loving family. Uh, And then while as a slave, his master's wife says, come and sleep with me, and he refuses. And so, she screams rape. And uh, her husband, who just happens to be the captain of the guard, that is the man in charge of the prison, takes him and sticks him in jail. And you've got to ask yourself, what is God doing? Is a God who allows his loyal and faithful servants like Joseph, if God allows those sorts of things to happen to him, is he a God worth believing in? Is he a, worth, is he a God that's worth being faithful to? Because I figure... Joseph's about as low as you can get, isn't he? From an earthly perspective, he's got nothing to look forward to. Even if he gets out of prison, he's still the slave of the man whose wife said, this guy raped me and who stuck him in jail and is trying to make his life a misery. So he's got nothing to look forward to. I love it that the Bible never hides from the fact that sometimes terrible things happen to God's people. You take a look at all the great men and women of faith in the Bible, just the names that come to mind when you think about that and look closely at their lives and you'll see they all go through dark times. There's Elijah, the great prophet Elijah, who is in such a dark place that he just says, God, I want to die. And there's Job. Uh, we know the story of Job, all of his things taken from his family and he, he, he gets ill, he's covered in boils and sores and even his wife says to him, why do you still maintain your integrity? Curse God and die. Just what you need from a wife, isn't it, when times are bad? And he says to God, God, I wish I had never been born. doesn't get much darker than that, does it? However, Joseph, in the darkest place I think imaginable really, um, Joseph gets these little glimpses that God's still in control. Uh, when, he's, when he's in Potiphar's house, Potiphar recognises some things in Joseph and puts him in charge of the household before his wife makes the accusation and he goes into jail. And when he's in jail, uh, Potiphar's the captain of the guard in charge of the jail, but, but, but the jailer under him recognises some things in Joseph and puts him in charge of the prison. So things, things sort of look a bit brighter for Joseph at various times and then boom, back down, he gets whacked again. But the writer of Genesis says on a number of occasions, God was with Joseph. So when we read that Joseph's been appointed to be the head of Potiphar's household, God was with Joseph. And when Joseph's in the prison and the jailer appoints him to sort of basically run the prison, God was with Joseph. Notice, friends, God is with Joseph in his misery. He's with him in his slavery. 
He's with him in the prison. We need to keep our, reminding ourselves, I think, at least I need to keep reminding myself, that God is with us in our difficulties, in our grief, in our illness, in our difficult relationships. Those things, when they happen to us, they are not evidence that God has given up on us. They're not evidence that somehow God has forgotten us or he doesn't love us as much as he loves other people. And if we have the eyes to see them, there will be those occasions in the midst of our problems where God shows that he's still with us. Those little glimpses of hope, those little glimpses of things in the future. And we need friends, we need to focus on those things when we see them. Let's look for God's encouragement right in the middle of our problems. So getting back to Joseph. At some stage, uh, Pharaoh has an issue with his chief baker, the guy in charge of his kitchens, and his chief butler. Uh, The Bible calls him his cupbearer, but that's probably what he was. And he sticks them in jail. And both these men, while in jail, the same jail where Joseph is, they have vivid dreams, each of them. And when Joseph comes in the morning to serve them, we're told, he notices that they're subdued for some reason. He knows there's something going wrong with them. He's pretty sensitive at that point, isn't he? He's picked up something that's going on. He hadn't he's changed a bit. He hadn't picked it up so much when he was a young bloke, had he? Remember he gets that, that dream about all of his brothers and sisters bowing down to him and the first thing he does is he tells them. And the Bible says they are really angry with him and they hate him for it. And he has another dream. What does he do? Tells them again. He certainly doesn't pick up on the vibe then, does he? But he's picking up on it now. They're subdued. And so he says to them, what's the matter? Um, and they, uh, they, so they tell him what their dreams were. Now, see, Joseph is, at this point, not bitter and twisted. You'd, you'd forgive him for being a bit bitter and twisted, wouldn't you? But he's not, isn't he? Is he reaching out to these men in their distress? He's reaching out with love and concern for others. He's not overcome by his problems, at least as I read the passage. The things that have been happening to him don't weigh him down so much that it stops him from being God's man in God's place. So he's not bitter and twisted. And they tell Joseph they've had dreams and Joseph says, God knows what your dreams are about. Tell me what they are. And so they tell Joseph their dreams. Read the passage for yourself, I'm not going to go into the details, but Joseph interprets them with God's help. And he's taking the opportunities that present themselves to serve others in the midst of his distress. Brothers and sisters, it is so easy when we suffer, isn't it? To get self-absorbed. It is so easy to focus on our sufferings and our problems. And I'm not saying that's a wrong thing to do. Don't hear me say that. It's easy to say, isn't it, that we shouldn't do it. But it's not the way to spiritual health and joy. Nehemiah 8.10 says, Do not grieve for the joy of the Lord is your strength. And it seems that's the case with Joseph. He's in the pits spiritually and physically and he's reaching out to others who are in need. C.S. Lewis once said, Part of every misery is the fact that you don't merely suffer but have to keep on thinking about the fact that you suffer. I not only live each endless day in grief but live each day thinking about living each day in grief. That's right, isn't it? 
And Joseph, it seems anyway, refuses to do that. He seems to be able to live in the moment, to serve God in the moment, no matter what the moment is. He does what he can to alleviate his suffering. We'll see that in a minute. But he takes every moment, moment by moment, to see if he can serve God and serve others. And so he interprets their dreams. Joseph tells the chief butler uh, that his dream means he will be restored to his position as Pharaoh's butler in three days' time. And then he tells the chief baker, you're going to die. <laughs> Imagine telling someone that. Within three days you'll be dead, you'll be executed. And it comes to pass just as the dreams had said. Now Joseph had said to the head butler, because he didn't bother saying it to the other bloke because he's not going to be around, but he said to the head butler, when you get back into Pharaoh's employment, put a good word in for me because I am innocent. So he, he, Joseph's not some sort of masochist who says, oh, God's letting all this stuff happen to me, I've just got to grin and bear it. No, he's, he's working, isn't he? Doing what he can to get out of the misery. But he's going to do what he can in the misery to be God's person. Joseph will serve his God by serving others. That seems to be, as I read the passage, his way of handling things. That's probably why he was put in charge of Potiphar's household and put in charge of the jail because he's a man of integrity, he's a man of holiness, he's a man who reaches out to others and treats others the way he'd like to be treated and so he's going to be given those positions of authority. Anyway, after he's set free, the butler, the Bible says, forgets all about Joseph. And then two years later, two years later, Pharaoh has a couple of disturbing dreams. We had them read to us. And they play on his mind and he can't get anyone to interpret them. None of his advisors, none of his wise men or magicians can do it. In chapter 41, we're told, the dream, he dreams of seven fat, well-fed cows getting eaten up by seven ugly, starving cows. And then he has a second dream and he sees seven really healthy heads of grain all growing on a single stalk and then seven dry, drought-ridden, shriveled-up heads of grain gobble up the healthy grain. I don't know how that happens, but it's a dream, right? They do weird things. And the butler, as I guess as he's talking to Pharaoh because he's around the place, hears that no one can interpret the dreams and he remembers Joseph, the great dream interpreter in prison. And so he tells Pharaoh about this Hebrew slave in jail who could interpret dreams. So Pharaoh sends for Joseph. Joseph gets a bath, a shave, clean pair of undies and he's brought in before Pharaoh, all nice and tidy. Friends, this is two years after Joseph had interpreted the butler's dream. He was 17 years old when he came to Egypt. He is now 30. This is 13 years as a slave and in prison. Anyway, Pharaoh calls Joseph in, says to him, I hear you can interpret dreams. And Joseph replies in verse 16, no, I cannot do it. But God will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. I want you to notice Joseph's gentle but effective way of getting his faith in there. It leaves the door open. He just says something that leaves the door open for Pharaoh to ask more questions if he needs to, if he wants to. And Pharaoh notices, he recognises, it says, that Joseph has the Spirit of God in him. It says it twice, verse 38 verse 39. 
Friends, when we're doing evangelism, we call it, that's the technical word for just sharing our faith with people, you don't have to blurt out the whole Bible message in one you know, verbal dump on people. Just letting people know you are a believer is often enough. Someone was telling me just a week or two ago that someone at work found out they were a Christian and in fact the whole team found out and made fun of them and mocked them for a while but a few weeks later one of them came to him and said, you're a Christian, can I ask you a few things? Because they knew they were a Christian. However, we must speak at some stage. One of the best known quotes of St Francis of Assisi was this, preach the gospel at all times when necessary, use words, end of quote. Now, I understand what he was getting at, that how we act is just as important and sometimes more important than words alone. But I am sure St Francis would agree that without words, there is no gospel. Without words, friends, there is no gospel. We know in the book of James, we looked at it last year, words without actions are useless, but actions without words are ambiguous. So the gospel we're told is good news. News. News is content. It's a message. There is a way to God that must be explained to people. It must be lived out as God's people. And we must be a people who are holy and honest and kind and working for justice and helping the needy. But if it's not communicated, if it's just actions alone with no words, it will not lead to faith in Jesus Christ. See, Pharaoh could just as easily thought, gee, Joseph's the best magician I've got in my court. Joseph must be a warlock. Unless Joseph had spoken and said it is the Lord God of the universe that's doing this, it's ambiguous. We must speak words but they can be subtle. I'm going to ask where Dave Cito to come forward. Um, can I use this microphone? Is that the right one, Ray? Um, because Dave was telling me a bit of a conversation he had with someone while he was caught up in the bushfires. So, Dave, tell us uh, just very briefly who you are, how long you've been coming here. Uh, so, Dave Cito. I've been coming here for about 15 years or something like that. Right, okay. Yeah, and family? Yes, married to Mel. Uh, we actually had our wedding here and our you reception did. right here. And it, <laughs> and it was, what do they call them, a, a flash, flash mob, mob wedding. Yeah. You should have been there, folks. It was fantastic. Nobody knew. Anyway, go on. Yeah. Uh, yeah and, and three kids. This man's IT. The first thing he did after he said I do was change his Facebook status. Uh, anyway, sorry, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Facebook was pretty new back then. Yeah, yeah it was. <laughs> so tell us, mate, you were caught up in the fires. How'd that happen? Yeah, so on December 30, which was a Monday, we went down in the evening to Lake Conjola and we woke up to the next morning, there was a bit of smoke in the air and a text message on my phone that said, the pool's been closed, all the kids' activities have been cancelled for the day because the smoke was too bad. And then within two hours there was messages saying, evacuate, evacuate, we've got to go on foot to the beach to get away from the fire. Yeah. And mate, you had a conversation, a significant conversation with someone. Tell us about that. Okay, uh, so despite the evacuation and all that sort of stuff, we ended up staying back at the holiday camp uh, and we didn't have any phones, we didn't have any electricity, didn't have any gas and we had only brought the food 
uh, we had taken from our fridge the, you know, that would have gone off if we were away for a week. So there's a bit of food. Uh, I actually know the night before, on the Monday, we went and bought some eggs and bacon for breakfast the next day. So that was all the food we had, and we ended up being stuck there for four days. And uh, the great thing about that was, with no phone, everyone was saying uh, that it's amazing that you know, all the adults are not stuck on their phones, so everybody started talking to each other and everybody started talking about what they had, what they didn't have, and there was a lot of sharing going on. So we made friends with a family that were in a caravan right next to us. They had four young kids. The mum was worried because she didn't have enough formula and all this sort of thing, and they didn't have much food either, so we started pooling resources, and yeah, everyone was giving. And just in the conversations that we were having uh, with that, the, the guy, his name is Ty, I just said, oh, you know, this is such a different experience to uh, a friend of mine from church who came down here just four weeks ago. So Pete and Sal had just been at the same place four weeks before and had a great time and Pete was telling me, oh, yeah, it's awesome, you're going to have a great time down here. I was <laughs> like, this is extremely different. <laughs> and that just dropping that one little thing of my mate from church came down here a, a few weeks ago... Um, while we were just chatting about other things, he said, it just came back to him. He's like, you said you went to church? And I said, yeah. yeah. He said, so you believe in God? And it's like, yes. And he said, wait a minute. <laughs> he goes back into his caravan and he gets out um, a Bible and a track. He said, a guy back, you know, a friend of a friend gave this to me, told me to read it over the holidays because... My son has been asking questions about God and I don't know how to answer them because I haven't been raised in a church or I don't know anything about religion. So this guy had given him a Bible and he'd started reading it and he didn't understand what it was about. (laughs) So I was like, wow, big open door, (laughs) no distractions. (laughs) And we just talked for hours about the Bible. So I almost did telling the entire Bible. But the opening line was just that little open door, wasn't it? It was just Yeah, the open door was my mate from, from church. church came down here four weeks ago and then he took the lead. Um, and it was like maybe hours later that he just, you know, we were still chatting mm. and you know, making lunch and whatnot and then he was like, so, because it, it seemed like something that was on his mind that he'd been wanting to uh. find somebody to talk to about it, so... Yeah. Thanks, mate. That's, that's very encouraging to hear. It's just those little things, those open doors. Like Joseph. Yeah. Just, keep yeah. just keep listening. Yeah. Just keep listening. You want to know more of the story? There's a whole lot more to it. Is there any follow-up on that? Uh, yes. Yeah, so they ended up coming and staying at our place. So they've, they're from Mildura and they were driving in their caravan north and they came through Sydney and they stayed with us for a couple of nights. So more conversations at my place at our leisure and... I gave them a couple of DVDs to take with them to watch in their vehicle on the way. and yeah, So we're still in touch and yeah, still chatting. Good on you, brother. Thanks for sharing that with us. Right. Appreciate it. Talk to him later about that. It's just a great story. Joseph gets an answer to Pharaoh's dreams and uh, he's not quite the arrogant young man that he was when he was... 17 with his brothers, but he doesn't hesitate to give Pharaoh advice. <laughs> he doesn't interpret his dreams. He says, here's what you should do, Pharaoh, Lord of the known world, great ruler. 
And uh, he tells him what to do. And uh, notice again, he's not a fatalist, he's Joseph. He knows this is all part of God's will and God's plan. But he's, he's going to make plans. He doesn't just say, oh, the drought's coming, God's sending a drought, you know, we ought to just suck it up. No, no, let's make plans, let's try and avoid this if we can. And what does Pharaoh do? Well, he takes Joseph's advice. We will learn more about that next week. And he appoints Joseph as the man to carry out the plans. Why? Look at verse 39. Pharaoh says, Can we find anyone like this man, one in whom is the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has made all this known to you, there is no no one so discerning and wise as you. You should be in charge of my palace. And all my people are to submit to your orders. Only with respect to the throne will I be greater than you. And so what Pharaoh does, he puts into practice that great leadership idiom, the person with the vision gets the plan, gets the, uh, gets the job. Joseph has the vision about what needs to be set up and Pharaoh says, you're the one to do it. And it's an incredible Cinderella story, isn't it? Incredible Cinderella story. From imprisoned slave to number two in the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh says, Joseph... Without your word, no one will lift a hand or foot in all Egypt. Isn't that extraordinary? Now, there's an elephant in the room. I don't know whether you've noticed it, but I noticed it and I want to quickly address it. That is, how could a loving God do that? How could a loving God let someone he loves go through all that? For 13 years, friends, he could have done it, couldn't he, in six months? Why 13 years? Well, you might explain it, as some people do, wrongly, let me say that up front before I explain this, that the Old Testament gives us a pretty primitive picture of God and that it lacks the sophistication and the fuller story of the New Testament. That the Old Testament writers were really only talking in terms they were familiar with and it was a crude, violent culture back then and so they talk in terms of God being a warrior and warfare and punishment and a God who must be in control of everything and so they say the Old Testament writers don't fully understand and so they sort of get it wrong but to the best of their understanding. When we get to the New Testament we get this complete picture of God and the two are sort of in contradiction. It's all governed by the view, I think, that, that a loving God will not allow, uh, will not ever get angry, will not punish, uh, will not discipline, will not let horrible things happen to his people. But folks, the life of Joseph presents us with a much bigger picture than that of God, I think. A more coherent view of God. The Old and the New Testaments are not in conflict with their portrayal of God. You will hear people say, oh, that's the God of the Old Testament. That's just, that's heresy if you are a reformed Christian. You read the Old Testament and you will see all that it says about God you will find in the New Testament. And you read your New Testament, all it says about God you will find in the Old Testament if you read it carefully. They are not, they are not in, in conflict with each other. Joseph is being prepared for the role of saviour. Rescuer. We'll find out more about that next week. He is the great saviour prepared for his role by suffering and pain. Sound familiar? Jesus, we are told, was made perfect or complete through his suffering. 
up there on the screen, I think. Now, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer of their salvation, talking about Jesus, perfect through what he suffered. Now, it's not that he wasn't perfect before. He was. He never sinned. He was perfect. But if Jesus had remained the perfect person he was at 12 years of age, when he was 33, he'd no longer be perfect. Because there needs to come maturity and rounding of character. And so Jesus developed as a human being, remaining perfect the whole time, but his suffering rounded out the man that God wanted him to be to, uh, to save our sins. So the idea there about perfect is this idea of completeness, well-rounded, whole. Jesus' suffering brought about our rescue. He sacrificed himself for us. The punishment of God fell on him rather than on us, says the Bible. So here are some reasons the Bible gives us uh, for suffering. Firstly, and there's a lot more reasons, but these are the big ones I was thinking about just briefly because I haven't got much time. Suffering develops character. Look what the Bible says. In Romans, we also glory in our sufferings. Or do you? We glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character and character hope. Nelson Mandela, imprisoned for 27 years in South Africa. He did a lot of wrong things. But he was, until the day he died, a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. You read the quotes of Nelson Mandela about his faith. God left him in jail for 27 years. 27 years. Did he lose his faith? No. Did he get bitter and angry? I can remember seeing the vision of him walking out of Robben Island Jail and being interviewed and stuff. And the standing thing was there was no bitterness. There was no rage. There was a man of gentleness and compassion and wisdom. And so much so that the people of his nation elected him prime minister, president, whatever the term is in South Africa. And this is what Archbishop Desmond Tutu said about Nelson Mandela. Like a most precious diamond honed deep beneath the surface of the earth, the Madiba, and that was uh, his tribal nom- uh, name, the Mandiba who emerged from prison in January 1990 was virtually flawless. Now, that's, if you know anything of Tutu, that's part of his exaggerated way of saying things. There's no way that Mandela was flawless. But in terms of his imagery, he's saying those 27 years in jail refined and purified Mandela's character so that he could get on with the work he had to do in South Africa. God, for 27 years did a work on Nelson Mandela like he did on Joseph, like he's doing on us at various times in our lives. And God is still doing mighty work in our prisons, among other places. There are genuine changes in people that happen in our prisons. People get converted. Now, sometimes they do it to, uh, to, to make it look good so they can get out earlier. But there are genuine conversions in prisons. There are a number of Christian organisations that care for those in prison. Margaret Saville here is involved with an organisation called Kairos that goes into prisons, works with the prisoners and works with the prisoners' families. And I bet she could tell you lots of great stories of 
faith and conversion and change and God being at work. Have a chat there afterwards. I'm sure she wouldn't mind telling you about it. We need to be involved in those things as God's people. That's the first reason. Develops character. Secondly, the Bible says God allows suffering because it's necessary discipline. Hebrews chapter 12, endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? If you're not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you're not legitimate, not true sons and daughters at all. At all. If you are not suffering, he says, you're not a child of God. Do you believe that? Is that sort of seeped into your being? If I'm a child of God, I'm going to suffer. How contrary is that for some of the teaching that goes on on TV and stuff around the place? Because God loves me and wants to discipline me. And it's not just change my character. Sometimes my suffering is there sometimes to bring me up short, to make me realise I'm on the wrong track. It makes us examine our lives. There are things to be learnt in our suffering, friends. And when we get self-absorbed, it's easy for me to say this, I know, but when we get self-absorbed and we just focus on the fact that we are in great pain, we miss the great work that God can do. Thirdly, Suffering produces dependence on God. It develops trust in God. Look what Paul says. In order to keep me from being conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh. A messenger of Satan, look at the next bit, to torment me. He was tormented. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why for Christ's sake I delight in what? Weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions and difficulties. For when I'm weak, I'm strong. Paul, when he's at his lowest point in his weaknesses, has to depend upon the power of God. It develops his faith. It produces dependence on God. Fourthly and lastly, you know how we handle suffering? People watch when we handle suffering with trust and dependence on God and get on with being faithful to him in our sufferings, that brings incredible glory to God. Your suffering is a golden opportunity to bring God glory. It's a hard one, isn't it? In the book of Job, Satan says to God one day, well, God says to Satan one day, see my servant Job, look at that faithful man. And Satan says, oh, come on God, it's just because you've blessed him. Take away all his blessings and he won't be faithful to you. Just let me take away his blessings, God, and we'll see. So God says, okay. And Job Job loses everything. His kids get killed. Um, He he loses his property. He loses his health. He loses everything except his wife. And she says to him, why are you still maintaining your integrity? Curse God and die. So she's not a blessing at all at that point, is she? Curse God and die. And Job, even though he says to God, I wish I'd never been born, remains faithful to God in the middle of it all. And God says to Satan, if you observe my servant Job, look at this man. You have done everything you can to him and he's faithful to me. I don't know whether you realise this, folks, but there's a whole world we don't see. There's a whole angelic world. There's a whole world of evil and spirits out there that we don't see but they are watching. 
And every time a man or woman of God remains faithful to God in the midst of their sufferings and their despair and their agony, there is celebration in heaven. God is honoured and the angels celebrate. Look at that, look at that, look at that. And the evil world, I am convinced, quake in their boots when they've thrown the worst they can at God's people and they still remain faithful to God. And your family are watching and your friends are watching. It is a hard thing, but it is true. Our suffering gives us a golden opportunity to bring glory and honour to God. We ought to be those who die well. I pray to God that when my time comes, I die well. And let's not forget the sufferings of Jesus incorporated into God's plan. For some reason, God incorporates suffering into his plan for you and I three son Jesus and for you and I in our lives. Now, I, I don't understand quite why that is, even though the Bible gives us those reasons and others, but I keep falling back on the fact of those beloved by God, those men and women faithful to God, like Hannah. Remember Hannah in the temple, uh, picked upon because she can't have children, because she's barren, um, her life is in agony and despair. She's in such a state that as she's praying to God, Samuel, the priest, thinks she's drunk. And she pours out her heart to God, remaining faithful to him. In the midst of all those things, we can bring glory and honour to God. He is doing his work amongst us. We don't understand it. But I see Hannah and I see Jeremiah and I see Elijah and I see David and I see Paul and I see all these great people of faith who suffer terribly but rejoice in the middle of it. And I go, who do I think I am so special that I need to avoid that? In fact, God's great blessing to me is that it's going to be tough at times. Friends, I want to finish. Please, in the midst of when time gets tough, and our, and our difficulties heap in on top of us. Remember Joseph. God was with him in it. Look for those, those times and those, those things where God just shows by even some of the little things that he's still with you because he is. He was with Joseph in the middle of those things. Remind yourself of that promise that was read to us earlier. All things work together for good for those who have been called by God according to his purposes. These promises, by the way, hold for God's people. They're not general promises to the whole world. If you're a visitor here with us today or if you're listening to this on podcast, these are the promises for God's people. They're not promises for the general world. But God says they can be yours. You just have to come to me. I open my arms wide and will accept you. If you come in faith and dependence and repentance on the Lord Jesus Christ, you too can have these promises. They are yours. And so we... Honour this God in the midst of all that occurs to us, knowing that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the future glory that awaits us, he says. Amen.